It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 79, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Daniel Allen raises 15 acres of vegetables at Allenbrook Farms, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. He and his wife, Stephanie, market all of their produce to 367 families through their free choice market-style CSA program. While many farmers are intensely focused on maximizing dollars per acre, Daniel has taken a perpendicular approach, grossing just $200,000 on Allenbrook's 15 acres of vegetable production. But he does that with no season extension and just one hired hand. Daniel digs into the details of production and distribution at Allenbrook Farms and how the free choice distribution system enables them to maximize efficiency and minimize complexity on the production side of the operation. We get into the details of their rapid harvest system, simple but effective production systems, weed management, and how Daniel keeps his body and mind in condition during the production and off seasons. He also shares the colorful history of his farming operation where he and Stephanie jumped in with both feet and sold their car to pay for seeds in 2011, their first year in production. We also hear just a little about Daniel's career as a high fashion model in New York City before coming back to the family farm in Tennessee. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Daniel Allen, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. So glad you could join us today. So, Daniel, I'd like to have you start by telling us a little bit about. Allenbrook Farms, where you're located, how many acres you're farming, how you're marketing your produce. Okay. Um, well, Allenbrook Farms is a 120-acre family farm in Spring Hill, Tennessee. It's about 30 miles south of Nashville. Um, my par- my grandparents bought this farm in 1962, I believe. And my granddad farmed it. Um, he did some what we call in the South truck patches, which are big vegetable patches and raised hogs and cattle. And um, my grandmother raised dairy goats on it. Um, there's 50 acres on one side of the road and 70 acres on the other side of the road. So I currently do all my vegetable production on the 70 acre side. We do about 15 acres of vegetable production and then i have um 50 55 acres in pasture where i have a small cattle herd that um, gives us all our compost and then the other side of the road is 50 acres and i actually have some of my grandmother's um bloodline from her old nubian goats that she used to win all the blue ribbons with but we just have a few of those and then the rest of that we do in hay um so our 15 acres feeds some um, 367 families a week for six months out of the year. We do all on-farm pickups um, Monday, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. And it's a market style where people kind of just come to the farm and pick out what they want and works out really good for everybody. Now, you've been farming there for since 2011, right? Yeah, um, we've been running the CSA since 2011. Um, I've, I've been out here since off and on since 2003. My granddad passed away in 2004, so I started taking care of the place then. Um, and then doing some other ventures 
Um, me and my wife, Stephanie, got married um, in 2010, and we started the CSA about a year after that. I didn't really know anything about CSAs or that you could actually farm or the local food movement or anything until we got married. And she um, she kept bringing me articles and things. And, I, you know, I grew up with old school farmers in my family. Like, you can't make a living farming, go to college. And it – um we kind of like jumped in with both feet after we figured out that you could actually do it. And we just started doing it. And here we are five years, six years later, and it's, it's turned into something pretty interesting. When you say you jumped in with both feet, tell us about getting started at Allenbrook farms. Well, I, um, grew up in a farming family. Obviously my grandparents had this farm, um, across town, my great grandmother moved to Spring Hill in the forties and she had a farm there. So I'm, I'm actually the fourth generation farming in this spot and we traced it back. And in Tennessee, I'm actually a ninth generation farmer. So I, I grew up around this my whole life, just kind of dirt farms. You know, we raised our vegetable crops and ate that all winter and dug potatoes when I was a little kid and, you know, store them under the house and, We'd raise rabbits for meat and kill hogs and do all that kind of stuff. But um, as you get older and, you know, you go off and do other things and you don't really think about farming. Everybody tells you you got to get off the farm. There's no money in it and that sort of thing. So, you know, we get married and we find out about the CSA movement. And Stephanie's like, you already know how to do this because I would just grow, you know, a half acre vegetable garden for fun. And I was raising cows and you know, I had a couple other jobs, but I was living on the farm and taking care of it. And she's like, you love doing this. This is what we need to do. I'm like, you can't make any money farming. You know, my granddad told me you can't do that. Anyway, long story short, we, um, I start doing the research and we thought, Hey, we can do this. We'll figure it out. So I, I quit my job. Um, and started going to a few other CSA farms around and looking at them and seeing what they were doing. And then we made a plan to just do it. Um, I quit my job in the summer and Stephanie quit hers in December. Um, and we sold a little car we had literally for seed money, bought seeds. And um, we were lucky to have, you know, a few tractors and a few implements laying around and some old stuff my granddad had left in the in the woods, you know, an old fence rose that I cleaned <laughs> out and fixed up and and we just started doing it in the first year we did a hundred families, which looking back was probably a little bit too much, but, but, um, we figured it out and we've grown every year since, and we've kind of got a really good system now. So it makes it a little bit easier. So you guys started, I mean, a hundred families, that's a, that's a pretty significant CSA for your first year without any real experience growing commercial vegetables. Yeah, it was, it, it was, it was definitely a learning experience and, you know, we didn't even know what we didn't know. Um, you know, we'd be out there, you know, just harvest very inefficient. We had some like kind of angels that came and floated down to us and helped us along, you know, just kind of random people that would show up and help us dig carrots all day. And, and, um, you know, we get, we actually went to a farmer's market back then. There's a really nice one in Franklin, uh, which is just about 15 miles from us. Um, and a really good farmer's market. And we would go there and we kind of learned from talking to other farmers. And yeah, it was, it was pretty intense that first year. The second year was a little bit more intense too, because I think we did, 
150 families and uh, Stephanie was pregnant that year. So I didn't really have her out in the fields to help. Um, so it was kind of all on me. It was, but after, after those first couple of years, we kind of settled in, figured out our little niche and we pulled it off those other years. It was just very, um, took a lot of effort, you know, a lot, a lot of long days. But I've been growing vegetables since I was, you know, a little, little kid. So it wasn't anything too new. I, you know, I learned to drive a tractor before I ever got in a car. So, and I've been, and I've always been really good at manual labor and hard work. And so it kind of, it kind of, you know, went, went well with what I was used to doing already. So it wasn't too bad. It's kind of funny. You say you're, you know, you're used to manual labor and hard work. Um, that doesn't seem to fit in with what you were doing in New York before you came back to the farm. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I was a high fashion model in New York right after high school. I got plucked up and I left the farm and I got to go travel and work with some fancy designer people and make some money and see the world. And it was a really good learning experience for me. Um, most of all, it really made me appreciate where I was from and how much I loved being on the farm and always wanting to get home to get back on the farm. And when I finally made the move to, to quit doing that, I think I was on a billboard on Times Square for Versace or something. I was like, it's enough. I'm going home to the farm. And I moved home. And <laughs> I moved home and started cleaning up my granddad's farm. He he had um gotten kind of sick. This is about 2003. 2002 he'd gotten kind of sick and i knew he didn't have much time left so i decided to move home and he um he hadn't been working this farm for a good 15 years my dad just had some cattle on it and so i started doing little things out here and helping him out and um started a little cattle herd and a landscaping business and just you know, I don't, the city life didn't really suit me. I'm more of an outside, you know, I like to get sweaty and dirty and see my accomplishments at the end of the day. You know, you said that the ground that, that you were farming when you came back in 2002, 2003 was all in pasture. Um, now what did you do to get that ground ready for vegetable farming? Or did you just plow that up and, and put in crops? Well, we've been running cattle, um, on the field, that I currently grow vegetables in right now. I have like five big gardens in this. It's, you know, it's a 20 acre field, but, um, or eight gardens, I think. Um, we, that had been in cattle pasture for, I mean, you know, ever since my grandparents have been out here and I'm imagining for quite a while before that really maintained, you know, they always did stuff basically organically because they didn't have money to spray, you know, the 2,4-D on hay fields and do all that sort of stuff. So there was a lot of cows. Um, first thing I did was we had about, I think, like 75 head out here. So the first thing I did was, um, well, me and my dad did, we, we thinned them all out and went down to about, I think, like eight mamas and locked them in the back. Um, to kind of start a herd over again. And I had been, um, you know, just gr growing up every winter we feed, we feed hay out to the cows in certain spots. We always do round bales. So I, and we always call it like rotted manure, which, you know, after the season's worth of eating hay, you know, we'd always pile it up in piles and let it sit there for a couple of years, turn it a few times. You know, I guess they call it compost now, but, um, 
So I had piles of that stuff everywhere. And, you know, the fields were really just basically in orchard grasses and wild clovers and that sort of stuff. So the first couple of years, you know, we plowed everything in the fall before and, um, I bought a little Farmall 140 and, you know, we, of course we had tillers and discs and every kind of plow you could think of. So we worked everything up and, uh, the nutrient content was just out of this world and everything grew. I didn't have to really add anything other than the compost from home for about three years, really. Um, it was just so rich and fat. Some, something about the the soils here, this is kind of like a, about, a quarter clay and three quarters loam and it's just really dark brown and holds water well and our main issue is just battling all the weeds you know but but over the course of time they've gotten a little better so i mean when you got this like fresh pasture cattle pasture that's been like that for 50 60 years in tennessee you don't really need to do that much to it at the beginning you know there wasn't really any rocks in it. I mean, it was, it was I don't know, it was kind of like flipping over just like a bountiful blessing of soil. It's, but it's, been, it's been cool to tend to it and add to it and watch that get even better. And you guys have some pretty flat ground there? It's pretty flat. Um, ten, our middle Tennessee is really hilly, so the farm does have a lot of hills, but I've got quite a few pretty flat spaces. I, I could probably get up to about – 40 acres of uh, vegetable production if I was inclined to. I don't know if I'm quite ready for that yet, but but it's there, you know. So we have some good creek bottom. We have quite a, quite a bit of flat spaces we can get to. It's not too rolling hills. So tell us a little bit more about, so on the farming side, I mean, you know, some, some about how you got started, but what about on the marketing side? You said you guys started off by doing a farmer's market and a CSA. Yeah. Um, and, and you're not doing the farmer's market anymore, right? No, no, we're not doing any farmer's markets or deliveries anywhere. Um, my wife, Stephanie, um, is, is a born marketer. Um, she has worked in the corporate world doing that sort of thing a lot. Um, and her last job, they weren't really using it to her full potential. So she kind of got bored with that, but she's really good at marketing. So we just... Um, you know, we use social media a lot to market and that first year <clears throat> we just, we started selling shares late fall before, um, the spring CSA would start. So, I mean, really like four or five, even six months before, and we just slowly trudged along and the farmer's market was real busy. They were easy to sell there. It was harder to get people to come to our house at first, but as we grew over the years of the farmer's market. Our name became more well-known. We realized that people, so many people were coming to our farm that we didn't really have to get up at 3.30 in the morning and load a truck up with a couple thousand pounds of stuff and drive it to a market and set it up and sit there for six hours and um, then pack it up and bring it back home. And then by, you know, two o'clock on Saturday, you feel like you've, been run over by a Mack truck and can't really do anything else. So we just, um, I think not this year, but last year we decided, Hey, we'll just stop going to the markets and we'll see if we, everybody will come on Saturday. And it ended up being really good for us because where we couldn't do as many CSA members at the farmer's market, cause we were limited to the amount of produce we could bring there. 
um, because you're also expected to sell things at the farmer's market. And when you don't sell stuff and you're only doing a CSA, the other customers kind of get mad at you, you know? Um, so if we were a little bit short on something and I couldn't sell these tomatoes cause I only had them for our CSA, um, it didn't really fly too well at the farmer's market, but here, you know, if I'm a little short on a tomato or something, I can run in the field and get them. And I could actually triple my CSA membership on my Saturdays at the farm um, because I'm not expected to take all this extra to sell. So in the long run, um, mathematically, I'm at, uh, it actually was more profitable for us to stay at home. So everybody comes to the farm to pick up then. You're not taking any vegetables off the farm at this point. No, it's real, it's, it's real easy. Um we try to run everything simply. Like I said, we're doing 15 acres of produce. Um, it's me, my wife, and we have one full-time employee. Um, my, really? Yeah. And I try to make it where Stephanie doesn't have to go out in the field too much. Um, usually around tomato time, she, she comes out and helps a lot. She does all the logistics and the emails and all the communication with the customers, which is just, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. I mean, that's a more than a full-time job and she's really good at it. She does all. So, you know, when you're running a CSA, that is a big job in and of itself. So typically in the gardens, it's just me and my one employee. And it's a lot, it's easier for us because what all we have to do is harvest everything, bring it down to our pickup location. If it's, um, which is just, you know, a barn, down by our house that we've decorated real nice. And we, um, if it's a greens or lettuce or something like that early, we'll dunk them and cool them in a cooler. And, you know, we'll, we'll start harvesting in the morning. We'll be done by lunch. Um, people start coming at three o'clock and everything's gone by six. So we're not even really holding anything for a long time. We don't bunch kale. We don't bag things. We don't, a lot of times we we don't wash stuff too much. Like if the zucchini is a little bit dirty, we just put it out. You know, there's huh. there's no sorting, and we, and we communicate with our customers like it's a farm. You know, if for y'all to be able to choose whatever you want and do it this way, you're going to have to sacrifice having perfectly clean zucchinis. You know, after it rains, it might be a little muddy, and everybody gets it. You know. So it kind of takes a lot of labor out. We don't have to pack all the boxes and wash everything and bunch everything and count everything. And um, so, it, you know, it, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a wild circus sometimes, but it, it, it has like a mad scientist um, <laughs> <laughs> creativity thing you got to do with it too. I would think that that doing all of your harvest on the day that folks are picking up, I, I'm getting I'm getting stressed out just thinking about that. Man, really? I mean, it's it's probably like my two favorite, my three favorite days of the week. We harvest on Monday and Wednesday for Monday for Monday and Wednesday pickups. Obviously, Saturday pickups are in the morning, so we harvest Friday. So Friday is kind of like real nice because I've got all day to do it if I want to. But um. You know, it's really not that hard. We just go out there because we don't have to count like, you know, the beginning weeks when there's a lot of greens and that stuff, that sort of thing. You want everybody to get a bunch of red kale or something. So we've got 150 people coming. If I would have to sit out there and bunch 150 bunches of kale, you know, and cut them and wash them, I'd end up having, you know, we harvest in those big orange uh, buckets. I think they kind of use them for sea, for fishing and stuff as well. They're like the bushel and a quarter. They're kind of like big colander things. Um, 
but you know, I would end up having like 10 or 15 of those things full of red kale bunches, you know, for my 120 people that are coming. But the way I do it, I can just pick like three of those buckets real quick, just jam them full. And that's all I'm going to use. Does that make sense? So, so, um, you know, obviously at certain times of the year, they're going to want more of one thing than another, but, um, really when you let them kind of go through it, you don't actually, you, a lot of that labor's cut out. So it's like, I go get three buckets of kale, three buckets of curly kale, you know, go get four buckets of zucchini, four buckets of squash. And we just kind of rip through it real quick. And we're usually, we'll start usually about eight and we'll be done a lot of times by like 11, 1130. And then we'll be on to weed eating or cultivating or doing whatever we do. Obviously like the, the big crops take more time, like potatoes and winter squash and watermelons and that sort of thing. But we'll do those in but all a lot days. Of Right. Those are things you're going to you know, harvest and set aside. Yeah. The, so if you're going out to harvest curly kale, mm-hmm. my CSA, uh, we always put things in boxes. Everything got everything got packed. So if I was doing if there was a kale week, we were going to go out. We were going to pick 212 bunches of kale and, and put one in each box. I, I had a number. I knew the quantity that I needed. How do you know how much kale people are going to take? Well, you just kind of see how much they take, you know? Um, and like I, like I said, I've been, this is my fifth season doing it. So I know that, especially right now, like we're still picking curly green kale right now, but we're also picking, we know we've got potatoes and onions and spaghetti squash and watermelons, zucchini squash. So they're not using very much. So I'm picking a bucket and a half of curly green kale pickup. But that went down from four. And like you just, the first pickup's always the hardest. You just go get a bunch because it's always the middle of May and there's more kale than you can even deal with anyway. You know what I mean? Like it's just everywhere. So you go get six buckets of each kind in that first pickup, you see how many you use. And if you only use two or three of each time of each kind, then the next one, you get like four because you want it to be full at the end too. When the people come through at the end, they don't want to see like two, two tomatoes right there. Or one bunch of kale left for them. You know what I mean? It wants to get, they don't feel like, cause it's the South and nobody wants to take the last biscuit. You know what I mean? Right. So it, that, that um, bucket of kale for that last five people that come through at the end needs to be full too. So it's, it's really not that hard. You just kind of got to watch and see what they go through. You always uh, like whenever we bring in a new item, you know, um, as a, especially in the spring, as the seasons change and more summer items start coming in from all the just overload of salad greens and kale and things, people will take a lot at first and then they'll kind of slow down. Um, but usually the first harvest of things, you usually get an abundance and it. Um, it's kind of, I kind of, it's planned out in the planting as well. So it, it, it really isn't that hard for me. It's, it, to me, it's a lot easier because like you said, I don't have to go pick 215 bunches of kale and bunch them. I need like four or five buckets and, and I, and we just ripped the whole kale plant out and, you know, I can pick four buckets of kale like that in 15 minutes at the most listen to some music or something you know so is is that something that you've kind of 
structured the farm around then a, a, a rapid harvest. Yeah, it's a it's a rapid, rapid, very fast harvest. I mean, we, we'll do things that like I'm sure some farmers would look at us like if we went to their farm and started doing it and they'd think we're totally crazy. But it really works like like especially with greens and things like Swiss shard plants. And I learned this just kind of like by making mistakes, you know, um, we were out. I told my guy to um, harvest shard a couple of years ago, and I went out there and we harvest with these big, you know, harvest knives. I think they're called like hori hories. They're kind of like soil knives. They have a serrated edge. And he was out there. You know, typically we go through and individually pick the pretty leaves, you know, and put all of this together. But he was out there taking the whole plant and just chopping it down to like three inches. You know, just stalking all the whole right. thing, just chopping it down. And, um, and I was like, no, 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 don't do that. I'm freaking out. And went back to the other thing. Without, I, I, two weeks later, I went to where he had chopped all those down, and they were the biggest, healthiest plants in the whole row. Well, right. It's just like doing rotational grazing. You know, they, they talk about that, right? You take the whole pasture down uh-huh. to a very low level, and then you leave it alone uh-huh. and let it regrow, and then you do it again. Yeah, so that's what we do. That's what we do a lot with, especially the greens. We will just hack them down real quick with knives. To just barely nothing. I mean, just the bittiest little kale leaves you can get on the plant and leave them for a couple of weeks to come back and they're ready to go. Now, when you say you're, you're harvesting kale like that, you're, you must be talking about like a red Russian style kale, not the, not the green curly kale that grows up on the, on the stock. Well, like the, the those will just kind of break with your hands. Typically I'll just break those off. Um, yeah, the red Russians we'll use the knives on, um, and sometimes the Toscano, but it won't be like a straight cut on top. You know, it'll be like two side swipes. So just where okay. we can not injure those little bitty babies. Um, but, you know, everything else we do take time with. And it's, it's kind of like a s- slow and steady and like keeping the pace more, more than just being destructive and ripping through it, too. Because, you know, you, get, you can't do that with your cucumbers and your squash and your zucchini and your tomato plants and stuff. But it's just it's important to find that pace that you can maintain for 15 hours a day every day or 12 hours or 10 or however long it may be. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And, you know, if we're getting out there early and doing that heavy lifting with the harvest and we're just kind of slow and steady and there's a couple of us, it it doesn't take us that long. And then we can um, move on to other things and just kind of slow and steady and slow and steady. It's like walking a marathon kind of. Again, the, you're talking about a fairly large amount of produce in a fairly short period of time. Yeah, um, yeah. How are you guys moving stuff back to the packing shed? Um, I I'm, I use a, a van, a cargo van. Um, I found that works the best for us, and we have one here. And we, you know, um, I got one a long time ago, so it's the same old one. It's just a kind of like instead of a truck where everything's exposed, we're able to just throw all these baskets in the in the van inside in the shade and then we'll just run them down to the packing shed and make you know quite a few trips i think usually typically we're going through about um i'd say 50 bushels of food a pickup day 50 to 60 so it's you know it's really only about four or five trips with like 15 baskets in there you know and I'm curious, why are you using the baskets instead of a more traditional harvest tote? Well, I mean, they, that, that is a harvest tote. You know, they're the, they're the orange dealies. I see a lot of people use them. Farmers use them on Instagram. Um, I like them because I can 
carry more of them at once, <laughs> really. You know what I mean? I can, I can carry two of them. I can carry one in each handful of zucchini and walk, you know, 200 feet down a row and I'm pulling 100 pounds or 80 pounds of zucchini out at once, you know, or if I really feel like it, I can double up with two on each hand, especially if it's lettuce or something like that, and just get a massive amount of, of stuff out with each step. Okay. So I'm not like taking too many steps. And then you said you're not doing too much post-harvest handling with this. You're basically bringing it back to the shed, cooling it down, uh-huh. and then setting it out for people to pick up. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll cool down the greens. We don't really cool down anything else. Um, we just put it out, you know, because it's not there very long. I mean, if we pick peppers, we're going to bring the, – if we cool them down when we brought them out, they would just get, you know, sweaty and stuff in it and kind of get even more dirty. So we just kind of put them out. And, you know, if we harvest peppers and we get, you know, five, six bushels of peppers out um, within four hours, they're all gone. So, and they're all at home being washed and put up in the way they need to be. So things, I mean, things like carrots and beets, those are also going out then without being washed. No, we'll we'll wash the beets. Um, We'll wash the carrots a little bit. This year, actually, we we basically had a carrot crop failure, which I wasn't very sad about because they're so hard to get out of the ground here. Um, <laughs> but we have tons of beets. Yeah, no, we'll bring those down and we'll um, we'll rinse them off and we'll wash them off. We'll typically do like wash the muddier things um, after the harvest when it heats up and we can be in the shade and wash stuff off, like you know, like kind of after lunch and. Yeah, we'll we'll clean the potatoes and everything before we put them out. Well, we store the potatoes unwashed, um, but we, yeah, we 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 try to get stuff as clean as we can, you know. Um, but we're not going to sit there and like just polish and scrub every single thing. And if it's we're too busy to, you know, wipe down every zucchini, they're not going to get wiped down. You know what I mean? So then you said that you've got 367 families coming and and picking up every week. I believe that's the number. Yeah. Okay. How, how, how much, how many vegetables is, are each of those families getting? Um, well, we have the three share sizes. So we have our full share size, which is, um, a half bushel. Then we have our half share, which is a peck, um, basket or a quarter bushel. And then we have a little share or sorry, quarter share, which is a half peck, which is a really tiny basket. People like those because there's a lot of like older people that are just like maybe they're a single older lady or just like I see a lot of single people using those and they don't eat much and they're kind of just getting into the, you know, eating clean thing. Um, But it just depends on obviously, you know, right now, like those those full shot size baskets, they're getting a lot of food in there. You know, I mean, they're probably, you know, with everything being as heavy as it is right now, I'm sure they're pulling 30 to 40, maybe even people get kind of generous with their baskets. If we let them stack it real high. We kind of encourage them to fit as much stuff as they can in there. And a lot of times we stop people then and we're like, we sure you got enough? We let them like go up to the handle and try to teach them how to um, Tetris it all in there so they can fit as much as possible. So um poundage wise i don't really know like i don't we don't really weigh them we just kind of you know like the full size um baskets they'll typically get maybe four or five grocery bags out because we have a bagging station at the end we just let let them use those baskets as like shopping carts they have to return them at the end that way we don't have to chase baskets around all year which is another thing that saves money too because we don't have to buy any of the boxes or the bags or the things that you never get back 
I mean, that's what's interesting about this, the, the, the model here. It seems like you've stripped it down to some real basics. Now, of course, this works because you're fairly close to your marketplace. Yeah. Um, just so happens. I mean, when my family bought this place back in the days, it was just the little tiniest farm in town and it was like that till forever. But in the past 10 years, it's really grown. So, um, the town of Spring Hill now has about a you know, 33 or 4,000 person population. And we're about four to five miles away from town. Um, so yeah, there's quite a few people around us, um, which really helps. We're still a little bit out there and we actually do have people still come from Franklin that used to go to the farmer's market, um, and pick up from us. And they just liked the way we did it so much. Cause you know, uh, people just around here seem to complain about the boxes, the pre-made boxes cause they're hate eggplants or something a lot. Do you guys get people, you said you're a half hour from Nashville Are people coming from Nashville or is your customer base really there in Spring Hill? Our customer base is in Spring Hill. Um, I don't think anybody comes from Nashville. Maybe a few people do come from Franklin, which is about 15 miles away because they were old customers from the farmer's market. But most of our customers come from just probably within a 10 to 15 mile radius of us. Um, there's quite a few people here now, but when you think about it, I mean, you're, I'm, we're only have room to do X amount of people and say, you know, we got 360 something people. I mean, that's, we're not even looking at barely 1% of the population, you know? Um, there's a lot of room for us to grow, but I'm just kind of a firm believer that, you know, there's people around you that need what you got. And you can find them even in when you're kind of out, out, you know, I mean, most farms that are way, way out, you still, you know, there's still a thousand people around. You can get a few of them come to your house, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of finding them and keeping them, you know, making them happy and communicating with them and showing them how to do this thing. So you talk about that. I mean, it's, it's a matter of finding them and keeping them. So how, how have you found those people? Well, uh, we found a lot of people um, through my wife's efforts. Um, She's really good at marketing. So social media, of course, you know, I know that works well for, you know, a lot of other farmers and a lot of other businesses in general. Um, Another thing we did was like when we were first starting finding all the little local newspapers, especially like the ones that, you know, always put the free little paper in your mailbox that you don't ask for. Yeah, you know, and getting and you know because those, those are around every little town typically, and you get them to do a little story on you and put your information on it because they're looking for stuff to write about and um, you know the organic local food movement. It's a pretty cool thing to write about. So we got we got them to do that, and so that got our word around and people heard about us, and then um, we kind of pushed to get accepted to that like fancy farmers market. I guess like if you're talking for starting out farmers. Um, Getting to a good farmer's market is good because you can build a clientele and you can see where they're from. And, um, you know, chances are they're probably not that far away from you if the farmer's market's not that far away from you. But if you're looking for people right around you, those little newspapers are good. I mean, of course, Facebook and all that lets you know where everybody is, basically. And word of mouth, once you get the customers, keeping them happy, giving them what they like, keeping things, you know, clean and pretty and having a place where they want to come to, you know, like the, our first year 
we were set up kind of like a little pop-up tent in the yard and everything wasn't as clean as it was because we really kind of had to clean up this farm a lot. But so, you know, these ladies and mamas and people that want to come get this, you know, organic clean food, you know, like to have a nice place. So it's good to have flowers around. And so, so when they do come, they feel comfortable and it's clean and like they like the way everything they want to bring their kids out there to see everything and, you know, just making them happy and communicating with them. And if you do that, they tell all their friends and, you know, we told all our friends about you. And, and when you get your max number, um, because, you know, not all CSAs can just do all the members, you know, there's a lot of smaller ones out here. We're only doing a hundred or 300 or 50 or be it what it is. Um, when you get that number, you know, we do, we start up a waiting list every year. So, cause we typically sell out, you know, a couple months before the season starts. So if, you know, we have that to draw on when it's time to sell next year's shares as well, cause there's inevitably going to be people move or people just didn't work for them cause they didn't know little Johnny had baseball practice and on this, on the day that they were supposed to come and this and that. Um, so we have like wait lists and kind of like, you know, just, I guess, just doing your best and trying to keep the people happy, you know, they'll, that, um, that's your best. Cause if, if you got people saying good things about you and spreading the word around your community, it shouldn't be that hard to find more people as long as they can see you, you know, when you guys are doing the pickups, are, are you actually there while people are picking up their produce? Yes, always. Yeah. Um, we set everything up. It'll be like people come at three o'clock. So they always get here a little bit early. So starting about one forty-five or so I'll set everything up. Um, just baskets. We like to like, we call it stack it high and watch it fly, which is a thing we use at the farmer's market. And we just noticed like whatever we really piled up, people would buy a lot of it. Um, so we like to have, you know, just everything stacked up real high. And then we have a checkoff and people pick up their basket and go through and we t- try to talk to everybody. And yeah, we're there pretty much every pickup, the whole pickup. Um, every now and again, I might have to jump up and do a little chore here and there, turn off some irrigation or something, but Stephanie will be down there talking to them. And, and I also have to be there cause I have to keep it full, you know, like, like, you know, if other people are setting up a market pickup and they're like, you know, we need X amount of this, this, and this, and everything has a sign on it, take two tomatoes. They kind of like have to count everything out, but we just like put it out there. So we have to make sure it stays full. So the people that are coming every hour, you know, have a lot to choose from. It's not like dwindling down and, so, yeah, we try to be really hands on and be there and see the people because, you know, it's a relationship. That's what, And that's what, to me, a CSA should be. It's a relationship between these people, this community of people and me and my wife that are farming and feeding them. And we need to be there and they need to see us and we need to see them. It shouldn't be a faceless entity, you know, where boxes are just going somewhere. Like I, For me, anyway. I mean, I just I like to see them and thank them and, you know, watch their kids grow. And it's pretty cool. We've had quite a few that have been with us the whole time now. And, you know, their kids were like just little bitty babies and now they're, 
you know, getting ready to start first grade and stuff is neat. It's fun to develop those kinds of relationships. And I think a lot of the farmers that I've spoken to who who have developed those relationships with their customers really value that as I mean, it's it's a it's a two way street. The customers appreciate it and the farmers really enjoy it, too. And it really increases the quality of life. Yeah. And, um, you know, and they get it and they help the other newer members get it and they bring members to you. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, like we had a problem with the first couple of plants of corn this year. I don't know, like the raccoons just went crazy on it and ate like all of it. They had a big party out there. I think the coyote population's down or something. I don't know. But, you know, they they got it. They're like, oh, yeah, not much corn this year, but you got it. I see you already got tons of spaghetti squash. That's awesome, you know. It wasn't much last year. So, and they, you know, they know that some things are going to be good and some things aren't every year and some things are going to be great. And they, they like it and they turn other people onto it and they're your biggest advocate. You know, it's, it's really neat. Hopefully I'll be around long enough to have some of those kids come work out here or something like that. There you yeah. go. Well, yeah, you're going to need to figure out a way to make more work on your farm then if that's what you want to do. Well, the problem is finding work. I mean, it's so hard. People just you kind of people can't really hack it, you know. I mean, right now I think the heat index is like 105 out there. It's, you know, 80% humidity and it's just a jungle of crops and weeds everywhere and people people just kind of it's it's hard to find someone that can like make it you know what i mean so tell me what kind of and and, and i want to i want to come back to the employee situation uh in after the break but just before we go here what what kind of retention rate do you guys have for our csa yeah um i'd say that we're upwards in the 60 to 70 percent it's kind of hard to tell percentage wise because we've grown every year too so we've had to get new members every year basically because we started you know with 100 and then went 150 and then went 200 and 250 and 360 so um we have I'll tell you this, we always, we do things different. We don't start selling shares in like January or February when most people do. We start selling them um, in October before the CSA is over. So um, all of our customers, but we only sell them to our customers and to the waitlist people um, at that time. And we have, a, I think last year we probably had like 70 something percent of the people resign that were current members um, that month of October and maybe into November a little bit. But I don't really know which other current members signed up after that. We, it's pretty good. I mean, I guess I don't, I've never really teetotally tracked it and done all the numbers just because we don't have time for tracking and numbers and charts and things. We just kind of have to do we can we can do our finances. But after that, we're we're just kind of just doing doing. So with that, we're going to take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with more from Daniel Allen of Allenbrook Farms just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes for certified organic transplant production. And while it's hard to start thinking now about next year's potting soil in the middle of the current season, you don't want to miss participating in Vermont Compost Company's fall pre-buy program. When you order Vermont Compost potting soil for next year's growing season, you can save significantly on the finest potting soil that I personally have ever used. There are many great options for significant savings. Vermont Compost Company organizes shared truckload weeks when they organize and group orders by state or region. When you place your order to ship on one of these shared truckloads, they offer discounts on the purchase of your potting soil. Plus, they consolidate the orders so growers also save on shipping fees. 
Now, if you want to get the best possible deal on Vermont compost potting soil, order a full truckload. If you don't need a full truckload yourself, get together with your farming friends and neighbors and order a full truckload together. This option offers the best possible price per sling bag or pallet and the best possible shipping rate. It's also the best option for growers who are a great distance away from Vermont. Growers who pre-buy full truckloads often end up paying a price for their sling bags that is lower than what growers pay for a sling bag picked up in Vermont. The fall pre-buy program runs September 21st to December 21st. For more information, visit the website, vermontcompost.com. Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it's a truly superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. All right, and we're back with Daniel Allen from Allenbrook Farms in Spring Hill, Tennessee. Daniel, so you mentioned two things that I think were that I wanted to follow up on just kind of concurrently here. Um, you said you've got just one full-time employee that's working for you. Uh, but you also mentioned that you guys are are, you know, you really focus hard on that on that harvest activity, but then you've got you're kind of swimming in the weeds and the vegetables and and through the humidity there that you've got. Tell us a little bit about how things work with that with that one employee, because that seems a little bit shy for your size of an operation. Oh, yeah, it's a little bit it's a little bit shy. But again, um, we do things a little bit more simple too. Uh, there. Yeah, we, there's definitely it's down here. It's a jungle. So, you know, weeds pop up quick. But for the most part, um, like what we'll do with a crop is we grow everything on about 48 inch centers and I grow it single row. I grow everything single row, kind of like old tobacco crops, um, or like truck patches, like they'd call them down here, um, with that same equipment. Cause we can't find any of the cool, like Alice chamber G's or neat cultivating things around here. So we can get farm all one forties. And I found it like as a time saver, if I just have it set up one way, I grow everything that same way and I don't have to be like um, changing cultivators around and knives around and setting up to two row or th- three row or this and that. But so, so Daniel, I'm actually going to stop you there because in a, in a world that where the conversation is oftentimes dominated by Elliot Coleman, JM40A and these other really intensive production growers, you're saying you're growing everything, a single row, 40 inch center. So if I'm understanding correctly, what you're doing then is if you're putting out head lettuce, it's a single roll of head lettuce. Yep. And then, of course, the same thing with something big like corn or, yeah. or tomatoes. Yeah, every, okay. everything, everything. I mean, of course, there'll be, you know, different on the spacing or whatever. But, you know, we'll do onions at a foot. And we do those kind of like L.A. Coleman, like in bunches, you know, where we'll do like three or four, like a cluster of them. But they're all single row. Um, so it makes it a lot less weeding for us and we can run through and cultivate and then just hoe things out while they're little, um, and keep them real clean. And then once they get established and get big, um, we'll keep them out as clean as we can, but I don't really see the point in, 
you know, super weeding a crop, a, a row of lettuce that um, I'm going to harvest in a week, you know? So like once it gets to a certain point, I kind of just don't really worry about the weeds because I know I'm just going to go through and cut it out. Right. And so I don't spend that time on making everything picture perfect and clean. And I've also noticed that you, it was one of your podcasts maybe last year, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he liked to do a lot of natural farming and, you know, let purposely let some weeds come up in some spaces to shade things and blanch things. And, um, I do a good little bit of that too, and experiment with that after listening to that and, um, I, I kind of feel like in some spots, the weeds are very beneficial, especially when it's really hot, um, like in a potato patch and you haven't had time to dig the rest of them out yet. And you let a weed crop come in and shade them out. It'll, it'll hold them down there in the ground for an extra couple of weeks. And it's no problem to mow them and then just dig them out. And it, I don't know. A lot of times the weeds aren't really that bad. Of course, you know, I find when the plants are little, you know, we spend a lot of a lot of time on them. But like I said, slow and steady, you know, you run the farm all through a couple rows of cucumbers and you, you can hand weed them in the evening, you know, pretty leisurely in an hour or so or hoe them anyway. I don't have time to subscribe to the really intensive gardening um, it's just too much labor, you know, for me and my size. And I, I feel like I would be, um, not being able to feed as many people, um, because to have those little beds with four rows and have to hand weed and hand hoe through every single one of them. Um, I just, we just don't have the time for that. Well, and I think a lot of it comes down to what your limiting factor is. Mm -hmm. You said that it's, it's hard for you guys to find good health yes. down there. Um, and you've clearly got a lot of land to work with. So, yeah. you know, it's, I think this is where you've, there's no one size fits all solution for a farming system. Yeah. And it's also the, you know, we'll, we've tried the interns and the woofers and that sort of stuff, and they never really work out for us and the volunteers. And I end up having to spend the whole day with them, making sure they're not destroying things or that they're not overheated and this and that. So Really, I don't, you know, I, I could probably find a bunch of people to come out here and and work. If you, I, I, they'd probably be interchanging. You know what I mean? I'd probably go through one every month or so. But uh, I also don't really want to give all the farm money away and um, to payroll because that money can be used to plant more trees or to you know, build more infrastructure or pay ourselves more or save or do that sort of thing. And I found that doing the system I have, it's simplified it. And I'm, I'm, you know, even if my guy goes down, like he, he got a little hot today and didn't feel good. So I sent him home early. Um, but before this call, you know, I picked up 3,500 pounds of watermelons and put them up and came in here and got, and like, if you, I feel like, I've made this system where I can feed this many people without having to hire that many people. So I don't really need to, I just need to take care of myself and feed myself and you know, in the off season train myself so that I can be physically capable and it not, you know, destroy me basically. So the, the one helper that you do have, uh-huh. Where did you pick that person up? Well, he, um, his name's Antonio and he was working for my dad and working for like landscaping companies and stuff, but he grew up, um, 
on a farm growing pumpkins and corn and and sweet potatoes and stuff. And um, the first couple of years, I didn't have any employees. And then he came to work with me the third year part time. And it really helped out. And I realized I'd be able to basically double. I was doing like 100, I was doing like 150, 170 members like by myself with me and Stephanie. And I figured if I got him on board, I could double it. So we basically did that. And um, I keep them full time year round. Um, so in the winter, he doesn't have to work as hard. And, you know, we work the greenhouses and plant seeds and, you know, clean up old fence rows, maybe do fencing projects. So also because I don't want to lose him and he's trained up so well now, it, he's kind of like my right hand. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even have to tell him he can just show up and he'll goes and knows what needs to be done. So, it, so instead of like, you know, having to train a new employee every year, I've had him, this is the third year now. And he just kind of knows the drill. You know, he'll, he'll show up tomorrow, know that he needs to get a couple of buckets of kale, a bucket of shard, um, start picking cayenne peppers and jalapenos and shishitos, and then we'll go from there, you know. Well, and I suppose, you know, it's another one of those advantages you have from really simplifying your system, not having to train people again and again, being able to have, you know, that one person we spent a lot of time on the podcast in, a, in some recent episodes talking about systems for managing employees and, you know, paperwork and work orders and and evaluation meetings. And you're probably able to cut out a whole lot of that just because of the way you're farming. Yeah. Um, I mean, essentially, um, I, I as far as the farming, like the tractor work, harvest work, um, cultivating, all that sort of stuff, I myself am basically 80% of the workforce. So, you know, I can have the meeting with myself and what needs to be done before I'm going to sleep. You know what I mean? Right. So I don't have to deal with any of that. The main part is keeping yourself healthy and strong enough to do that. Um, but also in doing it, it kind of, you know, it does that too. Um, it, it, it's, it's a lot of work, but you know, we also have the, we do, we're very seasonal. We don't do ex, ex season extension stuff. We do a CSA from the middle of May to the end of October and that's it. Um, after the end of October, whatever's in the gardens, it just can be in the gardens. I might go get some stuff to eat. You know what I mean? But then, uh, so I basically have November, December, January, and we'll start starting onions in the greenhouse towards the end of January um, and then, you know, workload kind of increases, but until like May, really the workload's not that hard, but I'll spend four or five months, um, in the off season, resting, eating well, um, doing, uh, you know, going to the gym and doing a strength program to kind of train for the next year's season. So I can, you know, walk 15 miles a day while carrying a hundred pounds, basically, right. you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. And it, it yeah. really helps out. Uh, I've done that in the past two years. And I mean, it really makes a big difference. You can just do more, you know, if you like, you know, a lot of people farm and they farm their animals and they're really interested in the percentages of proteins that the animal feeds are to make their animals grow a certain way, but they neglect to do that to them for themselves. And if you do that for yourself, you can actually, you know, get to where, you know, harvesting 50 bushels of food in a day is really not that hard. 
Right. Really thinking of yourself as a, as a, as a farming athlete rather than just as a, exactly. Like I'd rather go pick all the squash right now than go to the gym and do 350 pound squats. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. So what are you doing now to take care of yourself? I mean, obviously you've got the physical work, but I mean, it's physically demanding work. It's, it's mentally stressful. And, and again, you guys don't have a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot of slush in your plan. It doesn't sound no, like there's not, there's not too much. Well, I, we know, I just, we take a break in August because the, uh, the Tennessee Augusts are so brutal and just nothing really wants to grow, but okra and peppers, <laughs> you know, and then all the right. potatoes <laughs> you got stockpiled away. So, so right now I'm looking, I've got like three weeks until we get a couple week break. Um, and, and, um, like I said, I spent so much, uh, I stopped, I stopped doing the strength and the gym stuff probably around the middle of June just because the workload outside so hard. And that gives you like way more than enough. Um, and it's basically just like nutrition, making sure you're eating enough protein, eating enough carbs, eating enough fats, um, sleeping eight hours, drinking enough water, um, and just pacing yourself. Like I said, you know, you're not going to go try to run a marathon in a sprint, you know, sometimes you can get through it just, just fine. If you walk, it might take a little longer, but you're not going to have shin splints and torn tendons and stuff. You know what I mean? Cause that happened to me my first couple of years, I started hurting my tendons, like in my shoulders and elbows. And once I, you know, made sure I was getting the proper percentage of carbohydrates and fats and proteins and doing a strength regimen in the off season. So that's kind of stopped. Huh. I, I like that really deliberate approach to it and really thinking about it. I mean, you, you know, you change the oil in the tractor in the wintertime. Yeah. You know, you feed your, your, you get a load of baby chicks in and you feed them this certain amount of food that's mixed up wherever you bought it from. And it's a relegated amount of this thing that you feed them and that, that makes them grow and be healthy and strong. So you can't be out there farming all day and then come in and eat a salad. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, like you got to get a lot of calories and you fuel that. I mean, you're basically, uh, you know, like doing two a days at football practice for high school. You know what I mean? It's, it's rough out there. I'd like to dig in a little bit more on, on your actual crop production system. Now you guys are certified organic, right? Yes. And how long have you been? I assume that you started off basically farming organically. Yeah, we've always grown organically, um, even beyond that a little bit. Um, but we just got certified this year, this winter. We got certified. And I'm curious why you made that choice. It seems like with your with your marketing, and you you talked about the intensity of the of the relationship marketing mm-hmm. and the referral business that you're doing, and and having a, a pretty strong retention rate. Why go through the trouble and the expense of getting certified organic? Well, um, there's a few reasons. A because you know there's a lot of these catchwords out right now, you know, and. And as the local food and everything is getting so trendy, I mean, you can walk into an Ikea and find a picture that says local, organic, naturally grown farmer. Uh, we actually like bought one. That, yeah, just always, <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, there's all these things and there's all these farmers at all these farmers markets that, yeah, I'm organically grown. And 
I'm beyond organic and I'm certified natural and I'm biodynamic and I'm blah, blah, blah. And like really those people have bought stuff from the Amish people down a few counties away and brought it up and stuff, you know, and all the questions that, cause you know, you get 360 something families involved. There's quite a few people and there's quite a few questions, you know, and we just felt like that, that we were the ones doing it right. And that it would give us a way to, to tell people and show people without having to answer a bunch of questions or make up a bunch of polyculture biodiversity catchphrase names. You know what I'm saying? Like yep. we're certified organic, we grow organic and that's what we do. And, and we have that stamp of approval. You know, our food is ours. We're not buying it from somewhere and trying to pawn it off as an organically grown thing when, and it just, it's like a legitimacy. And I kind of feel like that that's important now because people are getting, I've read, people are getting on the bandwagon. You know, I read an article in the New York times just last night about how there's the fake CSAs up in New York and California. And they're really just people like, you know, being middlemen for farmers and other groups that aren't even really, you don't even really know if it's local, like how are you getting local oranges in New York kind of you know, in a CSA kind of thing. Right. So I feel like, you know, and it's also, it's a standard to achieve. And unless you achieve that standard and can prove it, then you can't be called that. Does that, you know, and I think, well, yeah, that totally makes sense. Otherwise I can be any kind of, I'm naturally chemical free, um, holistic polycultural food. You know what I mean? I think the other big advantage that this has, and I think this is especially important in a place like Tennessee where there aren't a whole lot of you, is that being certified organic makes it so that you can be counted as an organic farmer. Yeah, yeah. And it, if you're not certified, you're not you're not organic. You don't get counted that way when somebody's figuring out how much money to to give to organic research through the USDA or at the university or whatever, those you're not taken into account in that. Yeah, I agree. And it, it is important to do for that. It's also, um, you know, I mean, it's if you are growing organically and you have been growing organically, it's not very hard to become certified organic because you have your records of what you used and what you've done. And um, if, if you can prove that for a couple of years, I mean, it really wasn't that hard. It was a good thing to do in the winter. You know, we sat down and filled out the, um, the application and went through the whole process and the state of Tennessee, you know, gave us some uh, grant assistance to help with it. And it wasn't very expensive for us either. So uh, to me, it was just kind of like a no brainer and, you know, th uh, just the accountability and just down here, we've heard so many times about people, you know, buying things that they really didn't grow and not letting people come to their farms and visit their, how they grow things and stuff. And we just want to be like, you know, we're certified organic, we're inspected and that's how we roll. So tell us a little bit more about your farming system and, and farming on those 48 inch centers. How are you guys making that work on a, on a day-to-day -day basis? They, you guys, transplanters, mechanical seeders, is it all, all of the work being done by hand except for the cultivating? Uh, well, no, no we're, we are pretty mechanized. We have, you know, water wheel transplanter. We have all the kind of plows and discs and huge tillers and all that kind of fun stuff. So we can, we'll work the ground however it needs to be worked, depending on the moisture content and what we've had in there before, be it cover crop or, or, um, whatnot. Like say, if we're going to destroy a vetch cover crop, I'll flail mow it 
and then we'll um, incorporate that in. Um, then I'll let that sit for a little bit. I'll either turn it or I'll lightly or I'll disc it real hard or maybe lightly till it. Then typically I'll chisel plow it out um, just because our clay content can make things kind of get um, compacted pretty good. Um, so I'll chisel plow it out. Um, I, I typically do the compost and everything um, in the fall before the before the cover crops go in and everything that way i can get time for whatever weeds are in there to um or at least some of the weeds that are in the compost uh right <laughs> to um, germinate and then maybe get fried off you know um by frost or something so anyway we'll destroy that cover crop and then i'll chisel plow let it sit for a little bit and then I might add a little um more fertilizer to it if i if i'm gonna grow like a heavy crop like corn and we've been using Mighty Grow this year. Uh, I think it's out of Alabama. It's kind of like a composted chicken, um, Omri-approved fertilizer stuff. Um, I really don't use much of that. I'm more compost and um, cover crop-driven soil fertility. Um, but so what we'll do is when that's ready, you know, I'll get it, I'll get it ready uh, for seed beds or whatnot. If there's seed beds, I'll mark the, I'll mark the rows out with either my Farmall 140 or I'll do it with, um, I have a John Deere 5065E, which is actually on almost like a 60 inch center, but I'll just overlap the tires tracks, you know? Um, and then we'll, I, I typically, I don't, um, I, if I'm doing seeds, I'll just use like a Jang seeder and just push it. Cause I'm only really going to be doing like four or five rows. So I don't really see the need to have one that's attached to a tractor, you know, when I can go out there and put the headphones in and walk a thousand feet pretty easy, you know? Um, I can't really justify the $2,500 or whatever for the fancy thing that hooks on the tractor. The single row system that you've got, those kinds of really precision row spacings that you get with a, with a, with putting something behind the tractor yeah. aren't really an issue for yeah, you. Yeah, I don't need it because, I mean, if it's got a little curve in it when I'm going through with the farm all on the first couple, couple cultivations, it's not really an issue. So if, if we'll seed it, we'll seed it like that. If we're doing transplants, um, we actually ride the transplanter on the either the 5065E or the 5075E. And um, we'll just overlap the tires to, to put it at that 48-inch center and just plug them right into the ground. We used to do the plastic mulch a good bit, but I've really moved away from it in the past couple of years. It just to me... I end up spending more time dealing with the plastic mulch than with if I just would have cultivated it a couple of times and then gone in and harvested it. You know, by the time you like have to clean out the centers and weed eat everything because just things grow like crazy here and the crop gets too tall to cultivate in between the plastic. So you have to weed eat it and then you got to get the plastic out. And then those metals are really hard and compact. It just, it's just a lot of work. So I kind of don't really use that anymore. Um, I will use it on tomatoes and peppers um, and and on okra. I've been doing it on tomatoes, peppers, and okra, and that's pretty much it. Um, but anyway, so we'll transplant it or we'll seed it. Um, a lot of times we don't really put much irrigation out. Um, if it's real hot right now and I'm going to start seeding lettuce in the next couple of weeks, I'll probably put some drip line on top just to get it to germinate. And then, you know, as they keep, as the plants pop up, we'll run the cultivator down. 
each section um, once when everything's just a little bitty and get the threaded weeds out and we'll hand hoe each section. And then we'll do that about twice. And usually after that, things are, especially the quick crops, like all your brassicas and lettuces and that sort of thing, they're, um, they're pretty much clean enough. And if we get like a little weeds in the middle, it actually makes it a little better to harvest when it's wet. Um, cause we're not just like ankle deep in mud, you know, if we can kind of get a little turf going in there. That was something I wanted to ask about. Cause it feels like between those 48 inch centers, uh-huh. that's a, that's a lot of bare dirt. It, it is. And what we will, that's why we'll just clean out the centers like twice. Um, let the plants get good and established. And then we'll let those centers, we kind of got like a wild Bermuda grass or something that's out there and we'll let that stuff come in. Um, and then if, if we have to, we'll weed it once and it makes a really good, like tight little turf that we can walk down real comfortably. Um, especially in the rain. Cause I mean, it just all of a sudden the past few years just rains here all the time. So we're always harvesting in the mud, you know? So when you have a little grass path, it kind of helps. Um, and you know, that reason we don't make an effort to keep everything super pretty. Like if the weeds are harming a uh, a crop, I'll deal with it. If they're not, um, I'll kind of just like, you know, watch them. And a lot of times, you know, we'll let some weeds come up in the potato patch and, you know, I got, got some iron weed stuff and we had some potato beetles eating that and leaving the potatoes alone. Nice. Yeah. And you, you get, I mean, we don't really spray much actually ever either. You know, I don't, I don't like spraying things. So I feel like with a lot of diversity out there, a lot of different, you know, even the grasses in the pastures and the bugs in the pastures, everything kind of has a way of working itself out typically. And with our model, we plant a lot extra um, just because I've learned it's better to have way too much because it doesn't cost me much to have a bunch of extra in the worst cases. I'm throwing it away or feeding the little mini pigs or something with it. Um, it's a lot better than not having enough. So, and again, you've got this system where you put out too much kale. So what? Yeah. Yeah. Basically. I mean, again, if if you're sitting there plucking weeds out of a 12 rows on a 30 inch bed, you need to sell every leaf of salad greens. Yeah. No, I'd rather be pulling food out than pulling weeds. You know what I'm saying? There you go. (laughs) I'd rather pull 400 heads of lettuce out of a row in, in an hour than spend two hours taking the weeds out then pull the head to let us out. You know what I mean? So basically, yeah, we'll, um, we kind of run everything just like that. Um, the bigger crops, you know, like the corn, we'll, we might hill them. We might throw some hiller, hillers on it. Um, and of course we cultivate the potatoes with hillers, but I only cultivate the potatoes twice ever in a season and I never irrigate them and, and I'll let the weeds come up on them. And cause you, you never know down here, like, a month ago, it was already 100 degrees, and the potatoes were, you know, if they'd been bare dirt out there and just plants, they would have cooked on those hills. And then you got a, 2,000 pounds of potatoes gone that you need in September, you know what I mean? It works for us, and, you know, we don't, like I said, we don't have to have as much labor to keep everything picturesque and super perfect all the time. That being said, a lot of stuff is clean and really nice looking. I don't want to like just totally say like my my gardens are the ugliest things ever, you know. But right, but he, but I think again, I think what what works here and what I think was a, it was an important message in Bob Kennard's episode as well. 
who does who does kind of a I, I would think of a uh, what would you call it a, a weed friendly farm out in California yeah. that that I think it part of it does it works because of the 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 other factors that you have in your farm and the way that you're farming it's not you you can't tolerate weeds in a in a JM forty a intensive you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollar on an acre and a half market farm. That's not going to work. Yeah. But in your system, get some weeds. It's not a big deal. And you have something go to seed. Well, you know, you're going to cultivate it out next year. And and it's not like you're going to be picking it out of this out of this 12 rows on a 30 inch bed salad mix. Yeah. And it's a jungle here. Anyway, if you spent five years and totally decimated every weed on the property and never let any one of them go to seed and turned and 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 turned your gardens and and like let them be and like it had been five years since anything went to seed and you let it you turn it fresh fouled it and let it hang out it within three weeks it would be in a blanket of seeds out here it's a jungle and they blow in from the wind and there's just no stopping it anyway you know so why fight it so hard you know like that being said I'm still harvesting leeks right now in 100 degree heat because I've let the grass come up over them and they're totally shading them, and like they're really nice. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have that <laughs> if I would if, if it'd be super clean and pretty. They got burned up and rotted out already. You know what I mean? Right. So it's so really what it comes down to is that you're managing the weeds. Yeah. You're not eliminating the weeds. Yeah, I'm purposely letting a good bit come up in some places. Um. And not in other places, you know, like, um, we, I like weed eaters a lot. I mean, cause sometimes like those taller weeds can get up in something and you can just knock the tops down and then they're done. And then your big vining crop or your, um, you know, spaghetti squash or butternut squash or whatever just takes those over and it's gone. And instead of hand pulling a bunch of thorny weeds out for four hours, you went down with a weed eater for 20 minutes and it was done. And then two weeks later, you couldn't even tell, you know, I mean, it's just a beautiful acre of vines. So I just, you know, like the $150,000 on an acre of stuff, super intensive things. I mean, probably takes a lot more man hours and labors than 15 acres, you know, doing 300 and over 350 shares. You know what I mean? I'm not making a hundred thousand dollars an acre, but collectively and man hours wise, you know, we're, we're doing all right. Would you mind sharing how much you guys are grossing in a year? Um, we are grossing a little bit over 200 now every year with, with just the CSA. Um, which is really good for us because I mean, um, like I said, my payroll is only about six, seven hundred dollars a week, um, and we own all the tractors and all the equipment, so we don't really have any debt or anything, and we're able to have a really comfortable, nice life, and it's fulfilling, and we can go on vacations in the winter, and you know, do fun stuff, and and it's nice. I I, I like the seasonality of it of the you know about when everything's just getting too hard you can't handle it it stops and then about when you're bored of it being stopping you get to get back to it you know so it's a it's a nice life you know and it's a lot like i said it's easier for me to do 12 acres of something than in this way than it would be for me to do an acre another way 
All right. So with that, Daniel, it's time for us to turn to the lightning round. All right. As we're nearing the end of our show here. So what's your favorite tool on the farm? Uh, tractor. All things tractor. Any any kind of tractor. I've, I've had a love affair with tractors since I was probably three years old. I remember our first one was like a 52 Alice Chambers is my great granddad's. And I used to I used to drive it around uh, tractors. They do everything. I'd have a hard time dealing without them. If, 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 you, if you had to pick just one tractor. Um, I really like, uh, we've had, we've, we've had a number of tractors through the year with my, with my family's farm. We have like six right now. Um, my favorites are these little new John Deere 50 series. We have a 5065E and a 5075E. And for, I use the 65E a lot. And just for the for the size tractor it is, it has so much gumption. And I mean, you can, I've pulled three point turning plows with them and they're little and it's a gardening tractor and it's a all everything tractor. I really like it. And for the value, it's a, it's been a workhorse for me. So I'd say my 5065E. However, I, about a year ago, I got a, a totally redone Farmall 140, um, that had been just completely broken apart and put together by some sort of master. And it's like a mint condition just runs like a sewing machine. I, I kind of like her too. Oh, it's so nice. I mean, it's, it should be on display somewhere, but I'm afraid I'm kind of messing it up by using it all the time. Man, I think a tractor on display, this is, I mean, there's something wrong about that, right? Tractors <laughs> yeah. are meant to be used. Oh yeah. Anything that um, is old and, and um, has a agricultural use should be used, I think. And what's your favorite crop to grow? Potatoes. I love growing potatoes. We do um, we do probably two to two and a half acres of potatoes every year. And being down in the south, you know, we're all meat and potatoes kind of people. So we use uh, about I'd say two hundred pounds of potatoes a pickup. Um, so that's about six, 700 pounds of potatoes we use every week. And I just love them. They're like one of the first things you get in the ground. I love the Hills. I love, you know, typically on a potato crop, I'll put about 30 tons of compost down. And I just, I love the whole thing. It's like the first thing you get to do. I like watching them grow. I like digging them out because it's kind of like a treasure hunt, like Easter egg kind of thing. Like how'd they do this year? Oh, we got an eightfold yield this year. Good. I love uh, potatoes and onions are, are my, my favorite. And if you could go back in time, tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Um, I would tell myself to just focus just on the vegetables because the first year I tried to do, try to do it all. You know what I mean? I tried to have some meat hogs and chickens and we tried to like sell jams and jellies and do all this stuff. And I've, I've learned through the years, it's better just kind of focus on one thing and do it really well instead of getting a bunch of irons in the fire because then you start um, missing little things here and there. So I'd tell myself to just kind of take it a little easy. And um, probably I'd also tell myself to start working out in the off season sooner. Daniel, thank you so much. This has been a really great episode, really a lot of interesting stuff, and I think a ton of value. So thank you so much for making the time to do this today. Cool, man. Thank you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 79 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Allen. That's A-L-L-E-N. Today, I'd like to start the tractor as a shout out to one of the Farmer to Farmer podcast's biggest supporters, Steve Pincus and Beth Kazmar of TP Produce. 
Thank you so much, Beth and Steve, for all you've done for me and for the show. If you value the podcast, you can show your support in any of several ways. If you value the podcast, you can show your support in several ways. You can become a patron of the show by setting up a monthly donation through Patreon, which is kind of like Kickstarter for ongoing projects. Or you can do a one-time donation through PayPal, which would also be awesome. Plus, if you use the Amazon.com link on farmertofarmerpodcast.com, Amazon gets a percentage of what you spend back to the show, and it won't cost you a penny more. Go to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash Amazon to get that link. Heck, if you bookmark it, you could do it every time you go and shop on Amazon. farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate has more information and all the relevant links. Thank you so much for your support. On the non-monetary side of things, reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of our business. And so if you enjoy the show, please bounce on over to iTunes or Stitcher, leave us a review. Sign up for my email list at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. And please note, I do love to get your guest suggestions. This episode is a direct result of those suggestions. So please keep them coming at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. 